0: Good morning. We're reading from the second letter of John today. The Elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, The Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands, as you have heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. And the children of your chosen, sister, send their greetings. May this be added to your hearts. Please be seated.
1: Thank you, Faye. Well, we are in a series of messages right now on the one chapter books of the Bible. And there are five, and we are right in the middle. Two before, two after. Second John is a letter written from the elder to the elect lady and her children. Some wonder if the elect lady is a euphemism for a local church, maybe John's home church. Um, others take it at face value of being a personal letter between John and a dear friend. Doesn't really matter. The point and the truth of the letter does not change. John is reminding the elect lady, and us, of the litmus test of true Christianity, that is, true Christianity is recognized by what is believed, and by what is practiced. Second John, of course, belongs with the other writings of John. Both the Gospel of John and 1 John speak the same things, speak the same things as 2 John and with much of the same language, an emphasis on truth. John chapter 14, 1 John chapter 2, 2 John verses 2 and 4. Jesus as the Son of God. John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 2, 2 John verse 9. They knew commandment to love one another. John 13, 1 John 2, 2 John verse 5. That to love one another is to walk in Jesus' commandments. John 14, 1 John 5, 2 John verse 6. Abiding in Christ. John 15, 1 John, uh, 1 John 15, sorry, John 15, 1 John um, 2, 4 to 7, 2 John verse 9. And especially of God's Son coming in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14, 1 John chapter 2 uh, 4 and verse 2 and 2 John verse 7. These kind of themes to which John gives his attention to in his writings are not just general theological writings. They mattered in the church context to which he was writing and they matter in the church context in which we ourselves live 2000 years later. But it's this last concern of John's that Jesus came in the flesh that is John's particular concern in his first and second letters. And the reason for that stems from the context in which John was writing. So I just want to give you some background about that. In the late first century when John was writing, there was a philosophical and religious system that was just beginning to establish its roots in the religious world. The system was called Gnosticism, which comes from a word meaning knowledge. The essential framework of Gnosticism was that of a descending order of beings from God, who is spirit at the top, and creation, which is material, at the bottom. The spiritual realm is a region of light, Perfectly bright at the summit and dimming by degrees until one got to the darkness of the physical world at the bottom. It's kind of like noonday sun through sunset and dusk until the darkness of light. The supreme entity, call it God or not, is as far removed from the physical realm as possible. So in its most basic form, Gnosticism would say, God is good, creation is bad. Spirit is good, material is bad. And salvation, then, is freedom from the physical self and attainment to perfect spirit. Okay? That's Gnosticism. That may sound a little odd to us, but that's only because we as church people have been immersed in Christianity for so long. But it's not all that different from what is believed in the world today. Buddhism, for example, has its idea of being freed from the flesh with all its wants and desires. Hinduism has a hierarchy of many gods, above which is the great Brahman. So put these two philosophies together, and it's not hard to imagine a belief system in which Jesus is one of many spirit beings by whom one is freed from the flesh to become pure spirit. So Gnosticism by the way, has room for Jesus, too, as one of those spiritual beings. You believe in Jesus? So do we. In fact, we really know who Jesus is, who his person is, and how his work is to be understood. Now, a system like this, that includes Jesus, could, with relative ease at least, find inroads into the Christian church. And when John was writing near the end of the first century, that's what was happening. Some church leaders and teachers were beginning to gravitate towards this Gnostic form of teaching and were therefore beginning to shade their own teaching accordingly. In Gnosticism, of course, this system in which spirit and material are so widely separated has profound implications for Christianity. If Jesus is worshipped as God which of course he was, then it would be unthinkable that Jesus was a physical person, that he came in the flesh, which would be material. Gnostics could call Jesus the Son of God, but only in that he's one of the spiritual beings that have emanated from the person of God. And that's what John is so deeply and urgently addressing in his writings. He fears that the Christians will be led astray by this kind of false teaching. John is writing to anchor Christians in the truth. The word truth appears five times in the first four verses of this letter. So what is the truth that John has in mind? There's two facets of it. And all of Christianity centers itself around these two things that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God, not in some vague way like these spiritual beings who emanate from God and find their source in God. But Jesus is the Son of God who from eternity past has been in an intimate face-to-face relationship with God the Father, a relationship so intimate that we rightly see them as one. The prologue to John's gospel includes these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is John's gospel that records these words from John the Baptist. I have seen and borne witness that this, Jesus, is the Son of God. It's John who records the Jesus' words to Nicodemus, probably the most familiar words in the whole New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, or only begotten, Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It's John who records that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. 1 John, the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus his Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father as well. This is his testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and so on. And so it is in 2 John, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ the father's son whoever abides in this teaching verse 9 has the father and the son now if it sounds like john is bending over backwards to make sure that christians know that jesus is the son of god and that there be absolutely no ambiguity on this point of christian faith it's because he is bending over backwards To let go of the unique and eternal sonship of Jesus to God the Father is to let go of the words of Jesus, to let go of the uniform teaching of the apostles, the testimony of Scripture, and therefore to let go of Christianity itself. The eternal Son of the Eternal Father left the glory of heaven and became flesh. Carnivore is something that's a flesh eater, Chili con carne is chili with meat, with flesh. So Jesus' birth, we call the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. Didn't just look like a man. He was fully human. Now, this reality is so central to all of Christianity that John takes the gloves off to defend it against those who would weaken Christianity By assigning only a spiritual existence to Jesus. Now the best defense is a good offense. And so John goes on the attack and defends the truth that way. And he launches this attack from the strong position that he is an apostle and an eyewitness of Jesus' life. Again, John chapter 1, verse 14. We can bet that John wrote this sentence very deliberately, as it includes everything. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. He says it even more strongly in 1 John chapter 1, so that there will be no understanding. Get this. He says, "...that which was from the beginning..." Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And he's really forcefully making a point. I was there. Says John, the teaching of the apostles that has come down to you comes from those who empirically saw and touched and knew Jesus. And anyone who tells you that Jesus Christ was not flesh does not know what they're talking about. And in fact, the affirmation that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh, was incarnated, is the litmus test of uh, christian doctrine first john chapter four says beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirit to see if they are from god for many false prophets have gone out into the world first john f- uh, four verse one so how are they to test the spirits 1 John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John says the same thing in this second letter verse 7 for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of jesus christ in the flesh such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist so jesus is the son of god who came in the flesh so the question is why is this so important to christian doctrine who cares if it was real flesh or just the appearance of flesh. Isn't the crucifixion and the resurrection the center of Christianity? Yeah. But the crucifixion and resurrection only have meaning if Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh. So I want to consider that with you today. Adam, when he was tempted chose disobedience and turned from God. And all humanity since then has been born facing away from God. So could there be another Adam who is not already facing away from God who can make a better choice than Adam redeeming Adam's sinful decision and allowing man again to turn and face God without fear, without sin no there was not and god of course knew that knew that and so he took it upon himself to bring about this act of redemption so the father sent the son into the world to accomplish this very thing jesus would stand in the presence of god and face the same temptation as adam do i surrender to the will of god do i choose my own way and seek my own glory apart from him am I Lord of my own life or is he this is a temptation of Adam this is a temptation to which anyone ever born has yielded in fact it's the temptation of which every other temptation is just a variation on the theme all temptation really is this temptation who is Lord him or me This was a temptation that Jesus would also face. But for him to choose obedience, the temptation must also be real. And for the temptation to be real, he had to be in the flesh. So Jesus emptied himself of his perfect divine sinlessness and came in the flesh as a man that he might taste real temptation. Someone has said, well, could Jesus really have chosen sin? I mean, he was God. And Jesus really have an unfair advantage over Adam. Well, it was a sinless Adam who made the choice, first of all. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was actually the only man who has ever felt the full weight of temptation. As the weight of temptation grew, all others without exception has caved into it at one point. Only Jesus stood until temptation was at its full measure. and He did not fall. Jesus came to bear the weight of all human sin on his own shoulders and to be the sacrifice for it on the cross. As Adam carried all humanity with him into sin, so Jesus would carry all humanity with him out of sin And back to right standing before the face of God. But let us not think that Jesus breathed breathed through this reality. Early in his ministry, Satan tempted Jesus to avoid the suffering of the cross and the humiliation of even being a human. He challenged Jesus to assert his divine sonship and claim allegiance of the people that way. But Jesus did not. And Jesus perfectly obeyed God's required righteousness all through his life. And he did so until the very last moment drew near. Faced with the horror of the suffering of the cross, he was so tempted that he had to go and pray three times. Please, Father, don't do this to me. But whatever your will is, that I will do. I hate what is coming, Father. You know that but I'll go through it if you want me to. And he did take that sin to the cross, to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect man, the perfect son of God, a substitute sacrifice in sinful man's place. And yet even as he was nailed to the cross, the temptation grew in that whole process to be fully in the place of man, Must not only experience the temptation of sin, but the consequences of sin. In other words, he must experience the ultimate consequence of sin, the inability to stand before the face of a righteous and holy God. And ever since Adam, Jesus alone understood the horror of that reality. For he alone since Adam, have lived in perfect sinlessness in the presence of God. And it was the possibility of not being face-to-face with God that Jesus dreaded above all. He shrank from it. and So Jesus stood in the place of all humanity, with all the sin of humanity on his shoulders, the only hope of humanity, Was it possible that somebody could be in that place and not collapse? I mean, why not just dump off his back to the ground the almost unbearable burden of sin that was causing him such suffering? Sin that was not even his own. What would Jesus do? And Jesus, feeling the full force of sin that, like a reverse magnet, pushed people away from God... He put one foot a little behind, leaned forward into that force, planted his feet, and he stood. He suffered the abuse and the scorn of others. He suffered the bloody scourging of his back. He submitted to the horror of the crucifixion. He did not turn away despite the nearly overwhelming, overpowering temptation to do so. And yet still, I think for Jesus, it was not over The ultimate consequence of sin and therefore the ultimate temptation he had not yet faced. The reality of sin meant that God and the sinner could not face each other. The sinner cannot stand before the face of God. God cannot have sin in his presence. And there was Jesus bearing all the sin on himself. And this time, God exercised his wrath against sin, not by sending the sin away, but even more painful, by turning himself away. This is more than judgment. This is rejection. So Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've done all that you asked of me. I have lived sinlessly. I obeyed you at every turn, though it was so much easier to live for my own ease. I have surrendered to you. I hang here on the cross by your will, even with man's sin on my shoulders, a reality of the horror of which only you know in the first place. Have I not fulfilled your will in every way? Why have you forsaken me? And God the Father was silent. This was the moment of unimaginable temptation. Because of humanity's sin he carried on his shoulders, Jesus was shut out from the presence of God. A position of such inconceivable grief for the Son, who from eternity had been one with the Father. Now more than ever, how much more tempting to just lay down that sin What the temptation to simply let go of that burden which brought him such pain. A burden, again, that was not even his. And as the weight of sin crushed him, how tempting just to slip out from under it. What would Jesus do? The second Adam, what choice would he make? To surrender to the will of his father who had turned away from him. Or to surrender to the weight he bore and say to God, No, God, do not ask this of me. This is more than I can bear. This I cannot do. And the universe held its breath. And the sun refused to shine. And angels stood with their swords out, ready to intervene. While Satan rubbed his hands together. And at this very last moment, Jesus made his choice. He bowed his head, He drew a last breath. And to the God whose back was turned to him, he cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he stepped into the blackness of death. It was finished. Where one man had stood and failed, took all humanity with him, Another man had stood in the same place and said, God above all, no matter what the cost, and made the way for humanity to return. Jesus, the Son of God, faced with the prospect of separation from his Father, Jesus alone could know the full weight of temptation. Jesus, the Son of God, who alone had a life of infinite worth to lay down for the sins of the world, Jesus, the man who could stand in the place of all humanity and fulfill the standard of perfect obedience required of humanity to be in relationship to God, to be near to Him. That Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh. And that's what gives the crucifixion its power. Any being who is neither God nor man, but something in between, is not sufficient. It's only by the Son of God who came in the flesh that we have forgiveness of sins. Jesus' perfect sacrifice in which he stood in our place, God receives a sufficient atonement for the sins of the world, and God reckons Jesus' obedience and righteousness against our account of sin. For all intents and purposes, then, we died with Jesus. We were included in his death. And yet there is more. Having the sins of the world sufficiently atoned for, the judgment for sin completed, nothing more was needed. And so on the third day, God raised Jesus out of the blackness of death. And Jesus committing of his spirit to God his Father, he was vindicated for that. And Romans 6 states explicitly, if we have been united with him in his death, We shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And I wish I had more time to talk about that today. But in short, unless Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection, there was no resurrection at all. Unless the body that suffered, crucified, and died was raised to life, then we can't call it resurrection at all. And then nor could the hope of our physical resurrection hold out any hope for us. We are body and soul. We are flesh and spirit. That's who we are. Our bodies are not just the shells that hold the real us. Our bodies are part of the real us. And for Jesus to experience physical suffering and death, to truly have suffered in our place, so must his resurrection be physical and literal and bodily. If it was not, then we could not share in it with our whole being. So rather than be freed from our material self, our material, material self is redeemed. And since our sin had consequences that were physical, so our redemption must also be physical or it is not complete. Jesus came in the flesh, died in the flesh, and was raised in the flesh. Any religious system that denies that the Son of God came in the flesh is not an offshoot, not an advancement of Christianity. It is not Christianity at all. How does one recognize true Christian doctrine? It affirms that Jesus, the eternal and unique Son of the eternal God the Father, came in the flesh. That, according to John, is truth. That, according to God's word, to us, is truth. And it's from this truth that everything else flows. John speaks of love again in verse 5. The old command to love one another. Only a people who is facing God can truly love one another. Again, it was John who said, We love because he first loved us, and God is love. It's John who records Jesus' words that by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus had given this commandment and said, these words are heavy, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another as I have loved you, so you must love for another. Love one another. How did Jesus love love us? That's what we've been talking about this whole morning so far. He loved us enough to stand in our place, to lie down on the track as the train of God's judgment bore down on him. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, Jesus said. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. So, how does one recognize a Christian? Christianity in its full bloom leads us even to die for one another if needed. We sacrifice for one another. We consider the interests of one another above our own interests. We give water and clothing and care to even the least of these brothers of Jesus. In the second and third centuries, when the pagans saw the Christians serving, even caring for those who were dying and contagious, they exclaimed, See how they love one another. That Jesus came in the flesh is the litmus test of Christian doctrine. That's internal belief. It's unobservable to other people. Love for one another is the litmus test of Christian practice. That is external action and it is visible to all. 500 years ago, the poet George Herbert understood this when he wrote this. Doctrine and life, colors and light in one, when they combine and mingle, bring a strong regard and awe. But speech alone does vanish like a flaring thing, and in the ear, not conscience ring. Doctrine and life, colors and light, truth and light. And love. Without these, there is no Christianity. You might have four wheels. You might have two to four doors. Might be a steering wheel. Might be a hood and a trunk. Might have comfortable leather seats, but with no engine, you have no car. Just sits quiet, unable to move. You can't. You can get in and sit comfortably. You can put in a CD and listen to some enjoyable music. You can look out the windows at the world around you. But you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Nor can you give a lift to anyone who needs to go somewhere. Truth and love are the engine of Christianity that fires it up, puts it into action, and is compelling enough that people want to get in and go where you're going. Amen. I want us to spend a few minutes praying together. I'm going to ask one or two of you to just pray where you are, aloud so we can hear you. And then I'll close with prayer. So, one or two of you, let's pray. Jesus, as you gave it all on our behalf. Out of your love for us, we are enabled to love you. And so all of our ambitions and hopes and plans, you surrender them into your hands. as you yourself surrendered wholly to your Father. And as we surrender things into your hands, and we are in Christ who surrendered himself to the Father, there's a sense in which our surrender is included in yours, and all of our surrendering of everything is through you and also before the Father himself. Thank you for the incredible power and strength that you demonstrated as the perfect man for us imperfect and sinful humanity. So we worship you.